This is Women in a Day, a podcast created to give a deep look at the daily lives of women of all kinds, from sunrise to sunset, with Jenny Halzer and Portia Hensley. Hello, welcome to a Women in a Day podcast with Portia Hensley and Jenny Halzer. Today we have the Arapahoe County coroner, Kelly Lear. Jenny, please give us her introduction. Gladly. Kelly is a Colorado native. She received her undergraduate degree in biology, biochemistry, and molecular biology from Cornell College and her medical degree from the University of Colorado. She did her residency training at University of Colorado Hospital and her forensic fellowship in New Mexico. She is currently the forensic pathologist and elected coroner for Arapahoe County, and she has a strong focus on child death investigation. Thank you so much for being with us, Kelly. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. We have a lot of questions for you. Oh, good. We do. And first, I guess we should give the warning that the coroner's office is not what you see on TV, so we're going to be dispelling some myths here today as we learn more about your job and what you do. That's very true, and the most common comments I get are about exactly that, is how it's not like it's portrayed on TV. (laughs) Tell us about what is a coroner. Oh, so there's a couple different layers in my job. So a coroner is an elected official elected by county here in Colorado. Every county elects a coroner. In order to be elected coroner, you have to be 18 or over, registered to vote in the county, have no felonies, and have the equivalent of your high school diploma. Any old person could be a coroner. Almost any old person could be the coroner. You did not list any kind of medical degree at all. That's correct. That's That's correct. Notable, for sure. Yes. So the job of the coroner by Colorado statute is to determine the cause and manner of death. So the coroner oversees the death investigation. The coroner decides who gets an autopsy, but the coroner doesn't do the autopsy. The coroner has to hire a forensic pathologist to do the autopsy. And then the coroner takes that information and puts it on the death certificate. So the coroner is basically kind of a supervisory position that has to have enough medical knowledge to know if someone needs an autopsy or not, but doesn't actually perform any medical procedures. So then the forensic pathologist, that's the next kind of layer in all of this. The forensic pathologist is a medical doctor who specializes in forensic pathology basically specializes in performing autopsies to determine the cause and manner of death. So I kind of fit both of those roles, being the medical doctor in forensic pathology, I can actually do the autopsies. Being the coroner, I can use the information from my autopsy and put it on the death certificate. So that's kind of a redundancy in the roles. When there's a forensic pathologist in the office, it basically is doing the same thing, is determining the cause and manner of death and putting that on the death certificate. So by being in both positions, I'm basically kind of cutting out the middleman and I'm filling out my own death certificates rather than telling somebody else what to put on that death certificate. Yeah. So you do do the autopsies? Yes, I do. Is there a conflict of interest by you doing both? Uh, no, because what I do, I'm I'm on staff. I'm not paid by the autopsy, so I am here to do whatever autopsy comes into that office uh, every day. The Colorado revised statutes kind of outlines what cases need to be autopsied. So there's really not a whole lot of decision making that needs to be done. Um, Any sudden and unexpected death falls under the jurisdiction of the coroner's office. So anybody that dies 
outside of a hospital is basically reported to us. Hospice um, also is sometimes reported to us, sometimes not. Um, but anybody that dies outside of a hospital is reported to the coroner's office. Now, anybody that dies um, in a um, nursing home or at home with a known medical diagnosis would not come in for an autopsy. But anybody that dies without any known medical history or dies of something that's not natural then falls under the jurisdiction of the coroner's office, and we would bring that person in for an autopsy. So by not natural, there's basically four categories. Accident, so any accidental deaths, and that includes car crashes, drug overdoses, drownings, a whole host of things like that, falling down the stairs, that type of thing. Uh, suicides, so anybody that um, takes their own life intentionally. Homicides, where the death occurs at the hands of another. And then we have another category that's undetermined, which basically means we can't quite tell what happened. Most commonly, those are accidents versus suicides. So did somebody overdose on their medications intentionally because they were suicidal or accidentally because they just took too many? Um, and a lot of the deaths in infants are often fall into the undetermined category because there's a lot of times nothing is found. So we're kind of left with nothing, meaning we leave it undetermined. How many women coroners are there in Colorado? Coroners or forensic pathologists? Coroners. Ooh. Well, there's 64 counties. I would have to get out the map and look. I'm the only female forensic pathologist who's a coroner. Why would um, a lay person want to be a coroner? I mean, there's a couple different reasons. Some people just have an interest in in the field. So in counties where there's not enough volume to really have a full-time position, for example, um, someone who's got interest in death investigation oh, would be the coroner because they're not going to, you know, a, a county like Eagle County, I use Eagle County as an example because I do their autopsies um, on a contract basis, but they don't have enough volume to employ a forensic pathologist full-time. So they have a an elected lay coroner, um, and they have three, I believe, death investigators who, you know, it's kind of a part-time position, but they go out to any death scene and investigate that. They give me that information, I do their autopsy, and then give that information back to their office, and they sign the death certificate. So it's the same process as happens here. It's just a much smaller scale. So because every county has to elect a coroner, there's not 64 forensic pathologists who can be coroner, and there's not that many autopsies to sustain that. So it's something we see more in the bigger counties here in Colorado. I found it really interesting that this is not something that you stumbled into as an adult or even that you learned about in medical <laughs> school. You've wanted to do this since you were in eighth grade. Yes. Tell us about that. <laughs> yes. What, if long I, before most of us even knew that that was a thing, how did you learn about it, and what made you want to become a forensic pathologist? So I don't really remember. I mean, I, I know how I got into in, got interested in it in eighth grade. So I had to write a paper for extra credit for a science class. So it wasn't any assigned topic. I got to choose my topic, and I wrote about what happens to the human body after death. So I basically wrote about decomposition. Why were um, you interested in that in eighth grade? I don't, I don't remember. I just think it was okay. fascinating, like the, the idea of being able to tell things from a body, like kind of the detective work, but yeah. the, 
medical side of it. Did you I want don't, to be a doctor at that point? I had, I had an idea of wanting to be a doctor. You know, I, I, I knew I liked that, and I knew that I really liked science, and I really was interested in those types of classes and careers. Um, I don't know exactly why I landed on that for that particular paper. I do know that my science teacher was a little bit concerned about my <laughs> mental state after he read that. Um, but I mean, I did grow up watching Quincy, so I knew it existed. I don't, I don't say that I wanted to be a forensic pathologist because of Quincy, but at least I knew what it was. Right. These days, there's so many shows that depict it, but back when I was a child, there weren't that many. Um, you know, it was pretty much watching Quincy. And I'm sure even by the time you went to medical school, the number of people who were interested in forensic pathology, the volume is not what I assume it has to be now, right? It's still correct. When I went to medical school, I went to medical school at the height of ER, the television show, so mm -hmm. everybody wanted to be an emergency department physician. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> It's interesting just the way that works. That's fascinating. Um, there are a lot more people wanting to do forensics now. However, once people get into medicine and realize what that means, a lot of people don't stay with it. So you really have to be passionate about doing forensic pathology in order to stay in the field, partly because if you get into medical school, there's a lot of you know, other things obviously that you have to do and, you know, you have to see live patients and you have to do all the regular kind of stereotypical medical school rotations, which is great. And it's part of being a physician. There's a group of people these days who see it on TV and are more interested in the criminalistic side of things. Right. So that part of being a physician is not as attractive to them. So we see a, a lot of people really interested in death investigation and criminalistics, crime lab, that type of investigative work without wanting to do the actual autopsies and doing the medicine behind it. I see. Um, so there are more jobs available that you can do without having to make the commitment of medical school correct. and stay in the field. Yeah. Yeah. The other problem with it is once you get to, you finish medical school, you do pathology. Pathology is a four-year residency and that's general pathology. So it's a lot of looking under the microscope. It's a lot of laboratory work, which is, which I love and I did love when I was doing it, but a lot of people don't love the idea of sitting in front of a microscope all day long. Plus, once you do forensics, you know, you've jumped all those hurdles. You're, you love pathology. Forensics is an extra year of training after you finish your pathology residency and we're the only specialty where you do more training to get less pay. So for people who love pathology, they say, well, why would I do more training to make half as much as I would make going to work for a hospital? Right. So kind of there's a lot of attrition at every step of the way. And you said that there are a lot of jobs available due to the low numbers of forensic pathologists and the high demand. Correct. Tell us about that. So there's... Uh, because, like I said, because there's so much attrition along the way, there's not a lot of forensic pathologists. There's about 500 forensic pathologists nationwide, and there's an estimated 700 to 750 jobs available nationwide. Part of that is uh, because of offices not being funded. So there's offices that have jobs, 
in theory, but no funding for that. There's also a large number of jobs that have been created because of the opioid crisis. So we're seeing a large number of deaths related to overdoses nationwide. And particularly on the East Coast, a lot of offices have had to open up more positions and offer more jobs for forensic pathologists just to kind of keep their head above water, which they're struggling with because there's just not that many people out there to fill those jobs. We peaked in 2009 in Arapahoe County. I speak to Arapahoe County just because those are the numbers I'm most familiar with, but we kind of have mirrored the rest of the state. Uh, We peaked in 2009 with prescription opioid deaths. Um, Kind of went down a little bit, but have, have gone back up. So it's pretty plateaued, I think, in our county. We're not seeing an increasing number. We're actually seeing a decreasing number of prescription opioid deaths but we are seeing an increase in heroin-related deaths. Sure. So we're seeing a lot of heroin. Um, here in the Arapahoe County, we're still seeing the things we've always seen, methamphetamine and cocaine. But from probably 2012 to 2014, our rate of heroin deaths doubled. And it wow. just kind of sneaks up a little bit every year. A lot of that is thought to be due to people who have been addicted to prescription opioids and either not able to fill their prescriptions, not being felt like they're not getting the treatment they need, and then they'll start to seek their medications on the street when they realize how expensive that is and how cheap heroin is. We actually do see a fair number of people who switch from prescriptions to the needle in their arm, and it kind of speaks to how strong that addiction can be and how expensive that addiction can be. Let's go back a little bit to how you got into this, because I think yes. there's a lot that we didn't, we kind of glossed over. <laughs> Tell us what interests you in forensic pathology. Most people, this is not a normal path that they're on, and most people have it. I mean, I feel like you have a different brain. You have, this, you have that something in your head that doesn't get grossed out by all of that stuff. So tell us about yeah. that. Um, I think, again, it just kind of started with that, the idea of being able to tell things from the body, you know, that that being a medical detective and really being able to see what's happening and what caused the death or what disease process is happening. And it really kind of grew from there. It just was something that was so fascinating to me. And the idea of that part of it has just always been with me. I've just always really liked the idea of being able to to tell what's happening by looking inside that person. I also really like the idea of me speaking, you know, I'm the last person who can speak for that for that deceased person. Do you have any contact with families or Yeah, and that's and that's the other part of it that really is can be can be very rewarding is you know, I'm doing the examination, I'm doing the autopsy and I'm finding the answers that I can then give to the family so that they have answers. Sometimes that can be very rewarding and it can be very fulfilling for the family to to know what happened, to have their questions answered. You know, families want to know what happened, why did they die, how long did it take, did they suffer? You know, if it's a natural disease, is it something they need to worry about? Is it something that can be inherited or passed on? to that person's sons or daughters. Um, Those are all 
pretty common questions and things that I feel like are very important questions and mm-hmm. and feel like that's really one of the most important parts of my job is being able to speak to the families and, and give them the answers that they want. Obviously, I can't always give them answers. There are certainly right. times where it's frustrating and I don't find what I think I could find or I, there's things that happen that I can't diagnose at autopsy. And there's things that I find that the families just don't want to hear. Understandably, when you list those four categories, that's kind of the, the worst of all scenarios in yeah. cases, I'm sure. Yes, and I figure I'm seeing these people on the worst day of their lives. Mm-hmm. You know, my job, my employees are interfacing with these people on the worst day of their lives because these are, in general, unexpected deaths. So, And even if it's not unexpected, that's still unexpected to that family at that time and still a loss they have to grieve. So we know that there's a lot of things that happen in between us and the families that that can be perceived harshly, Um, answers that they might not want to hear, things that they might not like, or things that they just have in their lives that we don't understand. So there's a lot of, I think, difficult family dynamics, but that's part of why I love this job and, and the things that really draw me to it and keep me in it. Does anything ever bother you? Yes and no. I get a lot of students that come through thinking this is what they want to do, and I see a lot of them that get bothered in some way or another, and they aren't going to stay with it. So if things are bothersome or you can't handle them, you just don't stay in this line of work because you that's what you see. yourself in another place? I mean, are, um, what do you think, like, what do you do to be able to... I, is it like a squeamish thing or is it just, what, 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 are the, what do you think bothers people the most? I think there's two parts of it. I think part of it is being squeamish. Okay. So part of it is, yes, I see dead people and I do examinations on dead people and I'm handling their organs and doing dissections and you're but, peeling their skull back. Yes, yes, it's a very graphic procedure. <laughs> I mean, we need to really. I mean, there I don't are. Think most yes, of these people have seen autopsies. They're yes, intense. It's not just like a little poking in a prodding. Yeah, I mean, it's big no, incisions really. where I'm taking out their heart and their lungs and their brain, and there's a bone saw involved. And yeah, you are a mechanic. A lot of the students moment. don't like the bone saw. Yeah, because um, that's. Really, it's that's very yeah, real. it's very real. But there's also the other part of it that's not shown quite the same on TV. You know, when you're dealing with someone who's been in a motor vehicle crash and both legs have been amputated or they've been decapitated. I mean, there's also kind of the graphic part of it. Yeah. And then there's also the not everybody died yesterday part of it where we have decomposed Smell. bodies you know some people aren't discovered for days or weeks or months yeah. so they don't necessarily all smell very does the smell bother well. you uh it doesn't bother me in the sense that i can't handle it or can't do you smell it i've heard some I, people I, don't smell yeah it. i smell it feel. and i smell it on me afterwards yeah. and my dog definitely smells it on me when i, I go bet. home mm-hmm. um <laughs> And Does it's, your daughter smell it? She's never said anything. Really? Yeah, and I, and I try not. If it's really bad, I will shower before I go home. Uh-huh. There's definitely times where, you know, I know that I can smell it, but 
nobody else can. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's 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 times where nobody wants to be back there because it does smell, and we know it smells. And there's maggots. And there's maggots. What do you do with the maggots? Just kind of let them be. They're, if they're really bad, <laughs> if they're really bad, we'll chloroform them okay. ahead of time. So we okay. will put chloroform in the body bag before we do the autopsy just to kind of drug them mm-hmm. so that they're not Moving all over the place. Right. Uh-huh. But in general, they get washed down the drain. Oh, they get, they'll crawl off the table and kind or of try to leg. escape into... Do they ever get onto you? Um, we did have... <laughs> I mean, we got to ask the hard We did have <laughs> jumping maggots a couple weeks ago. Wow, which what is that? When I was in New Mexico, we had jumping maggots a lot, but I've never seen them here. And a couple weeks ago, we had jumping maggots. It was actually kind of exciting to me. I was going to say, <laughs> I thought that's like a very really like special jump, fun jumping highlight in a humdrum day. Like, but, oh my gosh, this takes me back to my yes, residency. <laughs> yes, it's like, it's, yes, it's just jumping maggots. And they, they'll get you know several inches off the the table or the body, and they'll jump off the side. And a few days later, we'll have a fly problem. Yeah. So you know, we do occasionally get flies that have developed from our cases in the back. And so I have to ask: Is there anything in your personal life that you're terrified of? You have to have something like you. Your she has a really small amygdala. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Is there some, like, what is it? There has to be something that I, totally gives you the heebie-jeebies because you deal I with can't, so much. Well, and there's nothing in that sense. I, I do get a lot of grief because I will refuse to touch raw meat, like what? raw chicken, the because turkey. Because it reminds you of work. If I put gloves on, I would be happy to stuff the turkey or prepare the chicken. But I do not want to touch raw meat with my bare hands. Tell us about that. Because it <laughs> I, makes you think of... I, I don't know that it necessarily well, makes me think of, of work. It's right? just... Like, I just... It's too... Yeah, I just don't touch raw meat with my bare hands. Oh. Because so, I just don't do that here. Yeah. Is it and, weird to eat meat? Um, I don't eat a lot of meat. Um, because of your work? Not necessarily because of my work. I was a vegetarian in college before I started this work. So it's not necessarily because of my work, but there are definitely times where I will see something and I'm like, that looks like work. Mm-hmm. Like people who eat tongue, like, no, that looks like something I see at work. Liver, mm, I see that at work. Yeah. So when you have gloves on, it's like it takes away that yeah. feel. It's like, it's, okay, this is it's work. It's fine. Yeah, it's work. The gloves come it's, off and then it's more it's, human. It's, yeah, or more something like real. that. Something like that. It's, I just well, can't do it. I'm always interested with people who do, you know, what you, something like what you do or what Porsche does. People who deal with really hard things that happen to very real people in their daily lives, do you often find that isolating? Or how do you... Because it's such a cool take away thing. the stress from that. People yeah. want to hear the fun, like the you know the the highlights, but there's always that moment where people start to think, oh, oh wait, that, yeah, what well, that could happen to my kid, or it could be me that yeah. has maggots. That yeah, and and I feel like part of me, you know, when I'm in a social situation and people ask what I do, it takes me a while to get to what I actually do. I usually say, oh, I'm a physician, mm-hmm. yeah. because part of me feels like my job shouldn't be a cocktail story. Because it is somebody's loved one. Right. Yeah. You know, it is somebody's loved one. Do you feel the same um, way, Portia, like with your, as a police officer? Yeah. I, when I take my uniform off, I forget about what I just did. That's why they ask me about qu- uh, stories and I don't remember them. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah. You do. Because I can't take, if I keep it on, if I keep that with me and then it's in my head. 
Yeah. I mean, do you take it home or how do you keep I, it here? Part of me, yes, I, I do. I do leave a lot of it here and I run. So what I kind of do for my, my own personal well-being is I'll go for a long run and that kind of helps me let it go. I do take some of it home a little bit just because Megan, my girlfriend, is also a forensic pathologist. So mm -hmm. there's that component of we can talk about work, which is nice in a way that actually is kind of helpful to be able to talk to somebody about work who understands what it means mm -hmm. and what that looks like and how that feels. I, I really like having that part of a relationship where I can do that and not have to show up at home and be upset for a reason I can't explain or right. that somebody doesn't understand. But there's also that line of, okay, we've talked about work and now there's something else. <laughs> and and having a young daughter, you know, she knows, it, it's been interesting over the years, you know, she used to know, oh yeah, mom's a doctor. And we say, oh, you're going to the pediatrician, That's she's a doctor just like your mom. <laughs> not quite, <laughs> not quite the same. You know, she knows now that I, I don't know if she would use the word autopsy, but she knows that I look at people and cut up pieces of people to find out why they died. So she does know that I work with dead people and doesn't really know what that means necessarily. She's been to the office and she's seen the back. She hasn't seen a dead person. She has seen people in body bags. Um, she was here, we have an open house once a year here at the facility, and she was here kind of walking through while we give tours to the public. So they're kind of, you know, basic tours that aren't too dramatic. Uh, but we do show people the cooler, and so she, she saw the cooler, and she's like, whoa. Her big, her big question was, why are some bodies in white body bags and some bodies in black body bags? Why is that? Usually the ones in white body bags came from the hospital just because that's what the hospital buys. So it's it's nothing too exciting, but yeah. we buy black body bags because that's what our budget allows for. They buy white body bags because that's what their supplier has. So, But that was her big question after being there was what that kind of difference is. She hasn't gotten into too much more depth as far as what I do. She does have a microscope. She wanted a microscope for her eighth oh, birthday. I that was a great So feeling. I was very excited about that. So she, you, she knows some of it. How many but, autopsies do you do a week? So it's hard for me to do that math in my head. We do about 400 to 450 autopsies per year. Okay. So it's more than one a day. Right. You know, averages more than one a day. Um, did you do one today? I did two autopsies and two external exams today. today. So two autopsies and then we do an external exam is basically you're in this really nice dress <laughs> and I'm trying know, to paint the like, picture. You I look like you're today? going to a cocktail party and you've done two autopsies today. Wow. Yes, I also had an administrative <laughs> meeting today, but wow. um, I was doing autopsies so I did not make that administrative meeting. <laughs> um, so so we do about 400 450 autopsies a year plus about 100 external examinations, which are, for example, two of mine today were older people, 89 years old, history of hypertension, but no doctor to sign a death certificate. So I'm basically looking over the body saying, yes, I'm signing this death certificate as high blood pressure. 
don't see um, any trauma. I don't see any trauma. There's no reason for me to do an autopsy on somebody who died of natural disease right. because it doesn't really fit the budget or the directive of the office. So a lot of those are um, just external examinations, not full autopsies. When you say we do 400, you do 400. You, <laughs> yes. right? It's a habit, yes, because I'm the only one. Yes, wow. we as so a county. So you are doing to be over part of 400 in yes. the near future. That's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. I'm, I looked at my numbers last week, actually, and in one year, I was at 401 cases, which is too many. How do you even go out of town or take vacation? Or I do have a few people who will cover for me if I need to be out of town. Um, if I'm going to be gone for a longer period, I'll enlist as many of those people as I can. Sometimes I just let them wait stack up stack up the bodies will stack up <laughs> so if i'm going to be gone for 2 days you know i was gone last week at a committee meeting in chicago so i was gone for 2 days there was nobody really convenient just to cover so they waited until i got back on thursday so you so, had a lot to catch up on so i had a few to catch up on like i said i'll bring people in and and they'll help me out where they can, but you know, my 400 cases are my cases for this past year and not the other ones that other people, other forensic pathologists have done. But you're running for re election. I am running for re election. And when, when is the election? Yeah. It, this, this year, so it's this November. Is anyone is, running against you? Nobody's running against me, so Jenny, I do you have that. Put in now. I know. He's too late. I know. Oh, wait, you had that felony late. though. Yeah, you, you might never. <laughs> I do have tricky. a dog off leash that haunted me for a while. <laughs> one of my office staff has one of those too. <laughs> um, yes, we have. Um, we have passed the deadline for somebody else to be on the ballot. Uh, so I held my breath for a while, and now it's a little bit better. But I still have to kind of go through the motions yeah, of it's be campaigning because you're campaigning, and you still have to. Do Are there all term the- limits? So I am not term limited because I'm a forensic pathologist. Okay. If somebody sense. else was elected, they would be term limited okay. if they were not a, uh, not a forensic pathologist. So that's good for me if I want to keep running for re-election. So you mentioned that your girlfriend, Megan, is also a forensic pathologist. How did yes. you two meet? Um, she actually rotated through this office as a resident. So oh, when we met, I was her boss. <laughs> Um, I'm just going to say it. Um, you fell in love over an open <laughs> over an open <laughs> over an open body. Uh, yes, yeah, something like that. Um, we were we were technically both married at the time, so you know when she rotated with me, it wasn't you know that that wasn't a plausible, place we were going right? to go. Yeah. It wasn't plausible. It wasn't you know on the table. Um, but that is how we met. So she was a resident here, rotated through my office, um, and then after she left. We kind of developed more than just a friendship, and yeah. and she's current. She's currently in that position of finishing her fellowship, so okay. she is finishing her forensic fellowship, and she'll be finished also June thirtieth, just like everybody else. Has she found a job? She has. So she is um, going to be taking a position in Pierce County, Washington, which is Tacoma. So that is kind of another challenge for me for us right now because she was here in Colorado she went away for her fellowship and the idea was she was going to be back here her family's here her kids are here 
the idea was she was going to be back here in Colorado. But when she was applying for jobs, the only open position in Colorado was here in my office. So, you know, we had to think about that and see if that would be feasible. And it really didn't feel like it was right for a lot of reasons. Um, And really wouldn't have put us in a position to be in the relationship we wanted to be in, which of course... Now she'll be in a different state, which doesn't put us in the position we want to be in um, for our relationship. But Has your job affected the way that you think about being a parent? Yes and no. Um, It's something I have to be cognizant of. So I will, and particularly when my daughter was a baby, there were a lot of things that I was like, not, not going to do things that I see babies dying in unsafe sleep conditions and bed sharing and parents rolling on top of babies. And Did it make you paranoid? It made me... Like SIDS? It made me very paranoid. Yeah. Um, I definitely was the mom that was standing there listening for her breathing. You know, okay. I was I was very paranoid for a lot of her infancy. <laughs> Probably had that baby monitor by my bed longer than I should have. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of where I have to check myself and and be like, okay, I need to, I need to relax, and I need to know that there's some things that I doesn't matter. It's going to happen, or it's not going to happen. Some things are not preventable. I can prevent the things that I can reasonably, but I don't want to be insane and make myself insane and make her insane. Right. Right. So I don't also don't want to transfer my neuroses to her. Now that she's old enough to be kind of roaming the neighborhood, it, I, I had that particularly, you know, the first couple summers where she'd be going back and forth to neighbors' houses, I had a lot of that, I'm going to watch you walk all the way to their front door. Right. Um, just because I have that in the back of my brain from from what I do and sure. from what you do. I mean, you see that yeah. more than I do, that part of it. So I definitely of- have that that paranoia, but I have let go of as much of it as I can and... I just have to take a deep breath and let her be a kid. So you live not far from here. Have you ever had to do an autopsy or had someone come through the office that you knew? Yes. um, I have had a few instances, and part of that is just being, you know, yes, I'm the elected coroner, therefore I have to live in Arapahoe County. So, you know, I have to live in the community where I work. It's not like I can live here and work in... Oh, okay you know, Boulder or Colorado Springs or somewhere else. Um, so it, it happens occasionally. So I, you know, one of my med school professors, some, you know, f- most commonly it's like the friend of the neighborhood kids. You know, there's a lot of teenagers in my neighborhood. So when there's that high school drunk driving accident or something like that, um, you know, that's kind of the most common thing is it's somebody that, I know who knows them, where I don't know them directly. Right. Would it be different to do an autopsy on somebody you knew? It would depend on who it was. So obviously, if it's just kind of an acquaintance, and I have done that, so I have done autopsies on, oh, a kid from the neighborhood or a kid from the church youth group or, you know, something like that, that I know the person but not well. Um, If it was somebody that I knew well, then... You know, we have we have procedures in place for all of right. us, the investigators as well, because if they're called to a death scene, yes, and they show up at the house of somebody they know, mm-hmm. you know, like oh, this is my best friend from middle school, 
you know, we do have procedures where they have to kind of stop and call in somebody else. And it would be the same thing for me where I would not want to autopsy somebody that I knew and it wouldn't be right for me to do that. I do have several people who have told me, however, that they would like me to do their autopsy. <laughs> That's funny. Um, like, it's such I a compliment. That in my will. <laughs> that I know. I know what kind of work you do, and I trust you. Therefore, I want you to do my autopsy. Um, but yes, in general, we try to avoid that, and it doesn't happen that frequently. Do you ever think about your own death? All the time. <laughs> Do you think about like what you don't want, where you don't want to die? Yes, and we in have the bathroom. That's a f- naked. <laughs> everybody dies in the bathroom naked, naked on the toilet. <laughs> on the toilet. Yes, yes. Everybody dies in the bathroom. Um, yeah, we have those discussions around the table. You know, when we're the office staff will sit around and have breakfast, and yes, those those topics come up. And like, oh well, if you were going to commit suicide, how would you oh, do it? Sure. Or sure. you know, if you could choose the way you wanted to die, what would you do? And because or you're so morbid. Yeah, it's just the, it's just what we see every day. Are you afraid of death? I'm not afraid of death. I mean, I don't want to die. I'm not right. ready to die, but it's going to happen to everybody, and I just hope it doesn't happen in certain ways. Sure. I hope there's not fire involved. I hope there's, you know, not yeah. What, what would drowning be the worst involved? Ways? Fire, drowning. <laughs> yeah, fi- I think fires would would be one of my top top negative choices. Uh-huh. You know, if I had to pick a way not to die, the fire would be just not not one of them. Do you look at people differently? The first time I ever saw an <laughs> autopsy, I started to look at them like a skeleton when you talk to people do you see inside of them i don't i mean there are certain and particularly people that i'm having a conversation with there might be somebody that walks down the street that i you know just see in passing that might for some reason remind me of somebody that i've autopsied (laughs) (laughs) for certain one reason or another um and so there might be things like that where i'd be like oh i know what you know I, I can picture what you look like inside, and I'm, I know what your liver might look like, you know, things like that, but, but not really. I don't really look at somebody and say, oh, I am picturing your brain right now as I talk to you. Do you make different lifestyle choices based on what you've seen through work, speaking of the um, liver? <laughs> speaking of the liver, I don't think so. I mean, there's certainly, I think, choices that I have made for my whole life that don't really have to do with work, like being a vegetarian. You know, I that wasn't really related to work. I can certainly see how someone might go that route after right. being here. Um, you know, I'm not a smoker. That was long before I came and saw what it does to people. And we have people who work here who do smoke, which just is astounding to me. Give us names we'll have <laughs> publicly. Oh, it's just, it just is one of those things that I just don't understand, but... Well, with something like the opioid crisis that you mentioned earlier, is it really frustrating, especially because you are an elected official, is it really frustrating to see what you see coming through your office and sort of the domino effect that it has on funding, resources, the impacts on the families, and to feel like not enough is being done? Why isn't more being done with this? I think it's both with the opioid crisis and with other things as well. I think that's one reason that I do what I do and one reason that I stay in this job is because of that preventative arm and it is frustrating to see that there's 
you know, there should be more things being done. But part of that is also I should be involved in those things that sh- that need to be done. So I am involved That's hard for you in. You to do because you're understaffed. Because you're I'm understaffed. Work. Yeah. So and there's a, there's a lot of things that I, when I am fully staffed, am more involved in. Uh, but we do have a tri county opioid um, prevention committee that looks at what can we do to help prevent these and what education can we do to providers who are doing the prescribing what education can we do to the community what education can we do regarding you know mental health um, so so I am involved in in those types of efforts I do because my my real I don't want to say specialty but the part of this that I like the most is the child deaths so I'm involved in a lot of the child prevention um, efforts I'm on several different child fatality prevention teams that look at how to prevent these deaths what information can I bring from what I see to say oh these are things that need to be changed these are things that and specifically focusing on what um Infants or sick? Really, or? with the child deaths, it's all ages. So we do a lot of work with the state health department, and we look at every death under 17. So that's, in the infants, it's a lot of safe sleep education and how to put your baby to sleep in a safe environment, mm-hmm. what that means um, for the baby, for you, all of those different things. But as it gets older, you know, there's a, that younger toddler age where it's drownings and it's how do we prevent the drownings and then it's how do we prevent car crashes in teenagers and how do we prevent overdoses in you know susceptible teenage populations and suicides there's a real big push for teen suicide prevention right now because a lot of communities are seeing an increase in teen suicides Uh, we're seeing it here and we're seeing it in preteens yeah um so there's a lot of that kind of how do we talk about it? How do we get that out to the communities and the schools and the parents? Do you feel different when you do a child autopsy? Um, I don't necessarily feel different. I feel like a lot of times there's the potential of it being more productive in the end in that it could actually provide some better answers um, to eat, whether that's to the parent or to, you know, the system. Higher stakes. The, kind of. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's more. There's more there. That's that feels like I can do some good. It's not, you know, the forty-five-year-old guy who overdosed on his heroin, which. I'm not saying that's not important, but it just has a different feel than it's more cut and the and... the, you know two-year-old who drowned in the bathtub or the four-year-old who has a congenital disease that was never diagnosed and now the family can have their other children tested. Yeah. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? So the best piece of advice is really something I have struggled with. I think that's why it's good advice for me. And it's, it's really about not defining myself by what I am or who I do. And I don't really have a better way to phrase that, I guess. Um, But I think for a long time, I really struggled with, you know, I am an athlete and I am a forensic pathologist and really defining myself in that way 
And when I kind of got out of really competing athletically, seriously and and competitively, I, I just really struggled with that concept of, oh, I am Kelly the triathlete. Right. And then all of a sudden I was not. Yeah. And, and being married, I mean, I was married for 20 years, so that was a big part of my identity. And when I was not married, Oh, I'm sure it was, Oh, I am not a wife. Therefore, am I a failure? And I, Oh, I failed at my marriage. Therefore I'm a failure and really having to get out of that mindset of defining myself that way. And I'm sure that was a very scary thing to do, to leave a long-term relationship It that took a lot of courage. And it needed to be done. Yeah. It needed to be done sooner than it was. You know, there's a lot of those 20 years that probably could have happened much earlier than that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's part of it. Part of And part of me being the way I am and the, the way I am driven of, oh, I must succeed in everything and I must not fail you know there's that was a big part of it was i'm not going to fail in that because i don't I'm do that i don't lose i'm not a failure i'm a winner yeah so do you feel liberated now that you look at success and failure a bit differently i do and you know when you asked earlier do i see myself doing something else that is a big part of it is i had never seen myself doing anything other than forensic pathology and i don't really i mean i i can't imagine doing anything else but it is something that I think of with a more open mind because I don't have to do this to be myself. I don't have to define myself by being a forensic pathologist. And if I want to move to Tacoma and open up a bakery, I can do that or something else that sounds equally (laughs) as scary. (laughs) I mean, it's scary to think about doing anything else because this is what I've done so long. But, but I also am trying to be more open-minded and not, like I said, defining myself by my job. What's your best advice for girls? We get a lot of requests for um, guests, you know, for girls who are interested in fields of like science. What's your best advice for a girl who's interested in something that seems a bit non-traditional? I just, I am always so encouraging of girls who love science. And, and I think it's becoming more traditional and some of the boundaries and stereotypes are coming down. You know, seeing my daughter in elementary school doing so much science that's geared towards all the kids and, you know, geared towards the girls as well. I say just, just follow through with it. And particularly as they go through school, as girls go through school, they're going to find different aspects that fit for them and just stay with it and don't let anybody tell them that they can't. Because when I was in eighth grade and wanted to do forensic pathology, You know, people looked at me weird and thought I was kind of an oddball, but that was okay. And it's okay to be looked at as a bit different because you like something that your friends don't like. And, you know, it doesn't make you weird or strange or any less of a person just because you like it and they don't. It just means that you have found your calling and you have found what is right and where you belong. Right. We need more people like you, Kelly. Yes, we do. Thanks. (laughs) 
Okay, I think that's it. Yeah, so thank you so much to our guest, Arapahoe County Coroner and Forensic Pathologist, mm -hmm. Kelly Lear. You can go on to our website, which is womeninadaypodcast.com. You can see photos of Kelly and read more about our interview. And thank you so much. We also have an Instagram page and a Facebook page. And make sure that you rate us on iTunes or SoundCloud and leave us a review. Thank yes. you.